Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor David Gillespie from the University of Bath's Department of European Studies and Modern Languages explores Russian culture and its search for a national identity. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin really by, um, with, with two sort of provisors. One is that um, Professor Lund mentioned that I'm from the northeast of England. My students tell me that it's easier to understand me when I speak Russian than English. <laughs> so I'm hoping that uh, the accent does not interfere with what I'm going to say. And the second proviso is that I was told before the, the lecture, just a few minutes before the lecture, that the dean had just flown back from Pakistan and one of the jobs, the main job perhaps, of this lecture is to keep him from falling asleep. <laughs> well, I said nobody's ever fallen asleep in my lecture before, but there's always a first time. Um, I'd like to begin by explaining what I intend to talk about in the lecture. First of all, to thank all of you for coming, uh, some of you from uh, quite far away. What I'd like to do is to take you through my research pathways uh, over the past 25 years or so, in particular the 20-odd years that I've been at Bath University and to demonstrate the ways in which my research interests have evolved and diversified. And finally, I'd like to indicate what I see, what I see as my significance, uh, the, work, the significance of my work in the greater scheme of things, or at least in the area of Russian studies. I'm aware that the title of the lecture um, will have associations of salacious excess and sexual intrigue, um, given the inclusion of two of the most famous individuals in modern Russian history. Well, alongside his many qualities... No one has yet accused uh, President Vladimir Putin of any behavioural impropriety or abuse of personal privilege with a moniker Lewinsky wannabe in the Kremlin equivalent <laughs> if there is one of the Oval Office. And sadly, my lecture does not refer to the mad monk. There he is. That's the last you'll see of him in this lecture. <clears throat> uh, the Ra Ra Rasputin that we all heard of in the... Uh, the Boney M song of the 1970s and a song still phenomenally popular in Russia today, who's been played by Christopher Lee and Alan Rickman, I don't see the resemblance, and whose excesses, historians tell us, directly led to the collapse of the Romanov dynasty in 1917. Undoubtedly a colourful figure, alas, Grisha Rasputin gets no further mention here. And there he goes. Although it is perhaps significant that both he and his namesake Valentin Rasputin, were both hail from Siberia. The Rasputin of the title is, in fact, Valentin Rasputin, a writer now approaching his 70th birthday who remains active in Russian political and cultural life and who was the subject of my doctoral dissertation more than 20 years ago. In the 1970s, Valentin Rasputin was the darling of the Soviet literary establishment and soon became one of the few Soviet writers of the stagnation period respected in the West. He was then still a relatively young writer who had established a reputation on the basis of four novellas and a few short stories. This work charted the death of rural Russia and with it the demise of perceived spiritual and moral values of a peculiar Russianness that harked back to some idyll of greatness of a Russia unpolluted by ideology, foreign influence or even foreign words. Anyway, I will return to Valentin Rasputin and his cultural comeback in the Russia presided over by uh, President Putin. Um, I'd like to say a few things about the names because Putin and Rasputin, of course, are related in etymo etymologically. Um, 
and they do provide us with an insight into Russian culture. So the, the Putin-Rasputin axis deserves some further comment. Rasputin is a name which is etymologically linked to the many road and river diversions, the Rasputia in Russian, that you can find in such a vast landmass as Siberia. So it's not um, uh, that surprising that it's not an uncommon Siberian name. The root of the word also has unfortunate connotations as a noun and adjective signifying dissoluteness and profligacy, Rasputni, Rasputini. The opposite of Rasputni is Putni, meaning being on the right track or sensible, from which, of course, we get the name Putin. Thus, in both name and deed, the current Russian president exudes an air of business-like efficiency and single-mindedness. Anyway, that's the end of the Russian vocabulary lesson. If there are any anoraks in the audience, or kurtkis kapishonam, I'll be happy to join you in the reception afterwards for further deliberations. In this lecture, as I've said, I intend to take you through my own explorations of Russian culture as I've studied it over the last 25 years to highlight what I see as the most salient, distinctive features and explain, hopefully successfully, why the study of Russian culture in the 20th century and beyond can speak to us today across what remains a geopolitical and, above all, a psychological divide. My first introduction to Russian and Russia was in the autumn of 1970, when, as a 13-year-old grammar school boy, I was persuaded by my parents to choose as my language option Russian rather than Latin or German at South Shields Grammar Technical School. Back in those days of the Cold War, they said Russian would be a far more useful language to know in the future, and who could say now they were wrong, if not exactly for the reasons they thought at the time. Three years of Russian to what was then O-level, then two more to A-level, another three years studying single honours Russian at Leeds University, then another seven as research and postdoctoral student, five of which were spent in the then Soviet Union, brings us to 1985. In that year, I was awarded my PhD, and not coincidentally, this was also the year that Bath University offered me a job as lecturer in Russian. And 1985 was a highly significant year in one other respect, and that is the coming to power in Moscow of Mikhail Gorbachev, the General Secretary of the Communist Party. I had myself been in Moscow, as I've said, for the previous three years, and I'd seen all of the, the, the previous incumbents, Brezhnev, Andropov and Chernyenka, they all died when I was there, although I had nothing to do with it. I realised it was time to go home in June 1985, not when Gorbachev announced his intention to reform the old order and establish a political dialogue with the West, but rather his first act of decisive government, the anti-alcohol campaign. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, with effectively a prohibition-like atmosphere throughout the country, alcohol being sold between the hours of 2 and 7pm, fights and mass brawls in the queues for it, at least the ones I was in, uh, we resourceful souls read through Venedict Yerofeyev's hugely enjoyable novel Moscow Circles and its advice on how to concoct the most vile but potent drinks from the most ordinary ingredients. Still, there's only so much boot polish mixed with men's aftershave you can drink. <laughs> I told myself, boarding the BA flight back to Heathrow in June 1985 and a job interview in Bath, I have, however, ordered some for the reception afterwards. <laughs> and I've got the boot polish. My doctoral dissertation was on the work of the so-called village writers, as I've said. A school popular in the 1960s and early 1970s for its lyrical evocation of the Russian countryside, its gallery of oldie-worldie peasant types, and its recollection of a world before industrialisation, before urbanisation, and even before the Bolsheviks. Critics at the time noted that village prose not only signalled a rejection of the ideological imperative in Soviet culture, otherwise known as socialist realism, 
but it was its very antithesis, a literature that looked not forward to the radiant future and sun-drenched vistas of communism, but back to a time of forefathers and tradition and stable spiritual values. The Russia of the village writers was very like this tranquil landscape by um, Russia's greatest landscape artist, Isaac Levitan, where the landscape itself is given divine blessing by the foregrounded church crosses. In another of Levitan's canvases, the seemingly never-ending sky signifies the vastness of Russia itself as it meets the Volga at some undefined point in the distance, a signifier of vastness and thus greatness. For the village writers of the 1960s and 1970s all believed in those parameters. In all probability, this Russia of tranquility, order, social cohesion is one that historically never existed, can be equated to a vision of England held by those who reminisce about leafy lanes, babbling brooks and hanging as symbols of the true England that once was. I don't think it can be related to any historically realistic portrayal of poverty and desolation in the Russian village that we know existed. And this is another painting from the 19th century. Um, there were some writers in the 1960s and 1970s, such as Fyodor Abramov, who maintained a strictly realistic approach to their depiction of contemporary village life and who rejected any varnishing of reality. Abramov's picture of life in a northern Russian village between the wars is not too dissimilar, I think, in its tone and substance to this 19th century painting by Pyotr Suchadorsky, for instance, where even the pigs, if you look in the foreground, seem to be drunk. <laughs> However, the norm in village prose was to produce lyrical pictures of an idyllic rural life before history, again, to my mind, having many affinities with the canvases of Isaac Levitan at the end of the 19th century. Back to Rasputin. Valentin Rasputin encapsulated the concern for the passing of this way of life in the three novellas that he published in the 1970s. But the last and best of these, Farewell to Machora in 1976, not only metaphorically did away with the Russian village of old, as it is flooded to make way for a hydroelectric dam, but it also brought about something of a creative crisis for Rasputin himself. Not only had he killed off village prose, he had also exhausted his own muse. But Valentin Rasputin, just like his notoriously hard-to-kill namesake, was not out for the count just yet. The longing for stability is closely linked with the desire for a strong hand to rule Russia in the image of past iron-willed rulers such as Joseph Stalin. The politics of village prose is most definitely conservative and patriarchal, with women largely resigned to their perceived natural places in the kitchen and the bedroom. A few years ago, I published an article that asked whether village prose was misogynistic in its denial of women's rights to social or political inclusion. My conclusion what it, that was that it was not, and it could not be, for village prose was not concerned with sexual relationships, as, for instance, our, our nearest English language equivalent, Thomas Hardy, with whom the village writers, village writers have otherwise much in common. Rather... The focus of Russian village prose was not on husband-wife relations, but on mother-son relations, or even grandmother-son relations. There are very few fathers in village prose, or generally positive male figures. Millions of Russian men had been killed in the war, of course, or perished during Stalin's purges. But in literature, 
progress and the destruction of traditional village life was often identified with men as symbols of political power. And the defence of the old values was taken up by women, themselves symbols of nature, earth and Mother Russia, who showed more integrity and moral courage than their menfolk. As I've said, thanks to Valentin Rasputin, village prose was to all intents and purposes dead by the late 1970s. So there I was in Bath in the late 1980s with a research interest in an area of writing that by common consent had exhausted itself. A lot of my doctoral work had also covered urban prose, literature about Soviet city life, a topic with which I was personally much more comfortable as, while I had lived for five years in Russian cities, Moscow and Leningrad, I had actually never been to a Russian village. It was therefore only a short skip and a jump to devote the next few years to an analysis of 1970s urban prose in the work of its main practitioner, Yuri Trifonov, who had died in 1981. Trifonov was a writer who was quite well known in Western academic circles in the 1970s and 1980s. Much of his work had been translated into English. But I became interested in an aspect of his work which had largely gone unnoticed by both Soviet and Western critics and which linked him, in my eyes, very closely to the village writers. That was his interest in history, especially post-1917 Russian history. For both Trifonov and the village writers, history had been far from impersonal. The village writers, such as Rasputin, Vasily Bielov, Fyodor Abramov, Viktor Stafiv, many others, had been born and spent their youth in the village only to see it forcibly modernised and effectively destroyed under the banner of collectivisation and subsequent urbanisation that drew away the younger people. It is no accident, then, that their work on the wholesomeness of village values and the idyll of a rural childhood is also a recollection of lost youth and innocence, and, as I've said, an emotion-drenched tribute to the old women, especially grandmothers, who were left to tend the land, look after the cattle and raise the children, after the men were either sent to the Gulag or had been killed in the war. The urban writer, Yuri Trifonov, has much in common with the village writers in his exploration of the moral makeup of modern society and his relatively honest assessment of the ravages of history and ideology on 20th century Russia. For Trifonov too, history was intensely personal, revolved around the figure of his own father. His own father, Valentin Trifonov, another Valentin, was an old Bolshevik who had helped create the Red Army, immediately following the Bolshevik coup d'etat in 1917. Trifnov's father was a hero of the Civil War, subsequently a Soviet diplomat, and then, as happened to so many of that generation, declared an enemy of the people and shot in 1937. His son, the future writer Yuri Trifnov, was 11 years old when his father was taken. The theme of a disrupted fatherless childhood is a constant one in his subsequent fiction. The boy, Yuri, and his sister would be raised by their grandmother following the arrest of their own mother several months after the father's execution. They would not see their mother until after the war. So both the urban writer, Yuri Trifonov, and the village writers are personal witnesses to the injustices and tragedies of Russian history in the 20th century, and who in both their real lives and their fictional writings focus on fatherlessness as a way of life. Another theme that binds them is their insistence that, in a country that airbrushed out of its history events and people that were inconvenient, it was impossible to build a future that had any meaning without knowing the truth of the past. Their work was not just a repudiation of the forward-looking ethos of official culture, a culture that looked up to muscle-bound tractor drivers or heroic wartime aviators. Rather, it was a fundamental rejection of the ideology of the end justifies the means, 
a reminder of the immense and largely self-inflicted human cost of that huge experiment in social engineering that was called the Soviet Union. I should emphasise that both um, Rasputin and uh, Trifonov were in no way dissident writers or writers who were went, went against the official grain. Rather, if anything, they pushed the envelope of what was permitted and what became after them permissible. Both Trifonov and the village writers worked within accepted limitations and although their work was subjected to censorship, they were officially approved and even fated. But their work, as well as that of their more controversial and politically uncompromising contemporary Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in effect brought Soviet literature into a Western European cultural orbit. Russian history is said to be Eastern or Oriental in its savage disregard for the individual, and certainly successive generations of Russian rulers, and possibly the current one, have not minded the abuse of civil and individual rights as they equate their own power with the might of the state and justify what they do in terms of for the sake of the great Russian state. But art, in this case literature, subverts the tyrant and serves a more democratic purpose. It asserts the right of the individual voice to be heard, for the individual life to be respected. Unfortunately, in the 20th century, that voice has too often been heard only from the grave. Those of us who have worked in the area of Soviet literature know it is a sad fact of life that the literature cannot be separated from the violent history or politics of the age. Power in Russia has been a male dominion for hundreds of years. One of my conclusions over the years is that Russian national discourse can be divided into two apparently paradoxical streams. The first is what I would call historical xenophobia, where Russia is the victim of its implacable enemies, its torments displayed in literature and film to a harrowing degree, its enemies portrayed as faceless beasts. On the other hand, there is Mother Russia as the victor, triumphing over diversity and threats to its very existence through self-sacrifice and enormous collective effort. The vampiric uh, ideology of the Soviet Union fed on both of these veins, a victim of capitalist encirclement, then Nazi invasion and finally imperialist brinkmanship that led to its ultimate collapse. It also had a messianic mission to bring social justice to the world through agitation and eventually revolution as it sought to recreate the world in its own ideological image. In post-Soviet Russia, we can see these, two, uh, these twin strains only too clearly of national self-definition, the bleeding heart that asks the rest of the world for understanding and tolerance, and the assertive bully that trades its natural resources for political influence and tells the West to keep out of its Ukrainian, Chechen or, more recently, Georgian backyards. In fact, the dual face of Russian identity, as both victim of injustice and militarily strong and assertive, can also be applied to the United States after 9-11. But that's another story and not part of this lecture. For decades, the USSR was the only bulwark against the economic and military might of the USA. And it saw itself, and was seen by millions of others, as a beacon of resistance, a legitimate alternative power structure that through the de de determinism of its philosophical foundations had history on its side. My impression has always been that Russians like to think of themselves as European in terms of their cultural heritage, but more like the Americans in the scale of their ambitions. Today, many Russians, especially young men, like to think that their country can match the swagger and blather of the United States, and that their own homegrown Schwarzeneggers, Stallones and Willises could take on the world, if only in film. Not for nothing is there a Russian pop song that has the line, If only my boyfriend were like Vladimir Putin. I'm not aware of an equivalent about Tony Blair. 
We can look back now with sad irony on the great pretensions of the Soviet state that saw itself as the bringer of future happiness and prosperity, a state that could put men into space and develop nuclear weapons of awesome destructive capability, but which, in June 1985, had reduced its people and some foreign residents to drinking eau de cologne mixed with boot polish, and whose bare shelves and grocery shops make Bath Sainsbury's look overstocked. I still regard myself as supremely fortunate to have lived through the early 1980s in Moscow and Leningrad, one of a handful of foreigners experiencing on a daily basis the queues, the crowded public transport that ordinary Russians had to put up with, but also the extraordinary personal warmth and generosity of those people. It was also an eye-opening, if not exactly mind-blowing experience to have seen the unmaking of history with my own eyes and felt it with my liver, and to have gained what I think are pertinent insights into the ways in which states treat their citizens and the cultural forms in which the people's voice is transmitted. But as I considered my research options in the early 1990s, given that Village Prose was dead, my book on Trifonov was being published, Trifonov was dead, I began to realise that at the heart of all my work and fascination with Russia was really a search for Russian national identity. Unfortunately for me, along with just about every other Western Slavist at the time. Whereas the literary culture I had studied bemoaned the absence of a strong father figure, cinema attracted me because it had at its core an exploration, it seemed to me, of masculinity. And masculinity in Russian culture is a thorny issue. Russian literary heroes of the 19th century are notorious for their emotional immaturity. It's only, to my mind, Lev Tolstoy who actually shows the emotional evolution of his male protagonist from youthful tearaway to contented family man. Otherwise, we have men in works by Pushkin, Lermontov, Turgenev, Dostoevsky, who essentially refuse to grow up. They have ideas about society and how to change the world, but who cannot, will not, talk to women. Indeed, abstract ideas are more important than relationships. Goncharov's uh, hero Oblomov can't even get out of his bed for much of that 450-page novel. This inability of the Russian literary male to spread his metaphorical oats is all too easy to find in the 20th century. The socialist realist positive hero finds his tractor sexier than the girl next door and will rather consummate his relationship with the party than buy a girl a drink or light her cigarette, both of such habits he would uh, disapprove anyway. The great nonconformist heroes of the 20th century, Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, Bulgakov's The Master from The Master Margarita, remain men who treat their women really quite badly, but still need them to wash their clothes and cook for them. It is the female muse that urges them to write and create literature for which they will be remembered in the future, but the muse must also be able to do the ironing. The master's Margarita goes through all kinds of torments to bring back the manuscript yet consigned to the flames in a peak of self-pity. Zhivago, rather than be held in great esteem as a symbol of spiritual resistance to tyranny, should actually be upbraided for leaving his wife and child for another woman who was also married with a child of her own. He then effectively leaves her and her daughter to her fate, makes no attempt to contact his wife and child after they are forced into emigration. So it doesn't seem much like a hero to me. Instead, we are encouraged by the author to think that writing poetry is more important than bringing up a family. Anyway, I digress slightly and return to the figure of the father. As with so many things in Russian culture, it was Pushkin who linked the notion of fatherhood and political authority. In his historical novel, The Captain's Daughter, the father is equated with the sovereign, the ruler of the nation. The Russian Tsar was regarded as the little father by his people. And ever since the, even since the fall of uh, autocracy, Russians have looked to their leader for guidance and tutelage as well as leadership. I recall a conversation I had with an elderly Russian in uh, the chaotic summer in Moscow in 1993. 
His sad conclusion on the seeming vacuum in political life at the time was, There was no one in charge, but also, more subliminally, there was no one to look after us. When we recall that President Yeltsin subsequently unable to get off his plane to greet the Irish Prime Minister, or acting like a buffoon in conducting a Berlin orchestra, who can say he was wrong? In my work on Russian film, the first stopping-off point was the great Sergei Eisenstein and his great film, Eisen the Terrible. And here I must apologise to students and colleagues in the audience who, throw, who may throw up their hands in horror at yet another mention by me of Ivan the Terrible. Anyway, Ivan the Terrible, I'm going to talk about it for a little while, is a film about another Russian hero without a father, a ruler whose terribleness and cruelty are rooted in the tragic loss of his mother when he was a child. He is a man who, like Joseph Stalin, justifies his cruelties in the name of a strong and united state and, like Stalin, comes to dominate the country and its people in this stunning shot towards the end of part one. After the death of his wife, Ivan becomes literally a man's man, as his becomes an all-male court, and his wife's place is taken by the young Fyodor Basmanov, who, history tells us, became Ivan's uh, lover. Not him. In Ivan the Terrible, there are many instances where clean-shaven young men consider the Tsar in open-mouthed adoration. Make of that subtitle what you will. There's no mention in the film, by the way, of Ivan's seven other wives. Compare this with the star treatment his English contemporary Henry VIII has had. Nor is Ivan shown, shown as a caring father, although we know he had many children, and he did indeed kill one of his sons in a fit of temper. The director Eisenstein was himself homosexual or possibly bisexual and there's no doubt that in this film the director is exploring his own sexuality as well as his relationship with his own mother and father in starkly bold images at a time when homosexuality was a criminal offence <coughs> in the Soviet Union. Eisenstein's own relationship with his father was a troubled one. His mother had walked out when he was a boy. Throughout his adult life he searched for father figures to look up to from Sigmund Freud to the theatre director Meyerhold, and from there to Joseph Stalin. Eisenstein's later films are full of images of suffering masculinity, of male bodies penetrated by sharp objects, as in this clip with a clear St. Sebastian resonance. Clearly, there's enough to satisfy anyone looking for evidence of, subconscious, uh, evidence of a subconscious exploration of masculinity and sexuality, I will not show any of the many booming cannons, their bowels turned upwards in this and other films, nor have I time to show any shots of upturned spears and swords in Alexander Nevsky, tips glinting in the sunlight, ready for action. Ivan the Terrible is structured around a series of competing masculinities, with a Nietzschean superman eventually triumphant, but all alone. It's interesting that in his diaries, Eisenstein notes that one of the influences for Ivan the Terrible was Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part I, which is also structured around fathers and sons, in this case, King Henry IV and his son Hal, the future Henry V, and the rebellious Lord Percy and his son Hotspur, who will be killed in battle by Prince Hal. Eisenstein's film, as we know, is an essay in the use of violence as a legitimate means of government, and thus it has a clear contemporary relevance in the USSR of the 1940s when it was made. Ivan the Terrible is, therefore, another Russian protagonist without a father. 
He may be a Tsar, the father to his people, but at what personal cost to him himself? What possible lessons can he pass down apart from a sadistic thirst for violence and cruelty? Why is it, I ask myself, that Russian filmmakers in these years, the 1930s and 1940s, were interested in male rulers such as Peter the Great, who, like Ivan, was so great that he had two films, two parts. He was filmed in two parts. Prince Alexander Nevsky, the 17th century warriors Minin and Pajarsky, the generals Kutuzov and Suvorov, the admirals Nakhimov, Ushakov, not to mention the male literary critic Belinsky or the composers Glinsky and Mussorgsky. Why is there no Soviet film biography from these years of Catherine the Great? I assume because in Russia making history was man's work. Anyway, I promise my students and colleagues I won't mention Ivan the Terrible again. But it remains true that the father figure, or its lack, is a constant theme in the culture of the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia. This is Andrei Tarkovsky, the Soviet Union's best-known film director in the 70s and 80s before his untimely death in 1986. The seven films he directed between 1962 and 1986 express his concern for man's spirituality in an age of scientific discovery, the flip, the flip side of which is potential mass destruction. Tarkovsky's affirmation of the importance of roots and home for personal identity are an integral part of his cinematic poetics. One of his most famous films, the science fiction film Solaris, 1972, ends with the reconciliation of father and son. After the son, Chris Kelvin, has been to the stars and back. Tarkovsky's film is not really about the benefit to mankind of space travel, so much as the need for man to understand his fellow man to have deep and lasting emotional attachments, and above all, to have family. It should be said that Tarkovsky's film takes considerable liberties with the source material, uh, Stanislav Lem's novel of 1961. That novel and the George Clooney film of it in 2002 focuses more on the relationship of Kelvin and his wife, now dead, and his guilt. Tarkovsky replaces that relationship with that of the son and the father. Throughout the 1990s, amid the chaos of post-Soviet Russia and economic collapse, I searched for signs of a cultural renaissance, hoping against hope that Russian culture would find its voice now that it was freed of ideology. Remind us of the brilliance of the Russian creative mind that had often been thwarted or even destroyed in the 20th century. The prose works of Vladimir Sorokin provided clear, if uncomfortable, evidence that certainly censorship had been removed but the deliberate accumulation of graphic, sexual, scatological and profane motifs marked him as one who would challenge any orthodoxy. Undoubtedly a tough read in purely aesthetic terms, Sarokin's works also display artistic maturity in their rejection of any grand narrative in Russian culture and with their postmodernist wink at the reader. By way of contrast, the emigre writer Sergei Dovlatov, who died in 1990 in the USA, thus missed the collapse of the Soviet Union by a year or so, was for me a hearty reminder of the strength and vitality of the Russian comic tradition and literature, with his laugh-out-loud celebration of the absurdity of life experienced by a confused male caught between the twin existential temptations of peroxide blondes and cheap wine. The work of both of these writers not concerned with absent fathers, nor did it explore the patriarchal nature of Russian or Soviet society. Rather, they deconstructed the pomposities of officialdom and posited an aesthetic credo that proclaimed itself to be free from any taint of ideology.
In film, however, I would speculate that directors have looked not outwards to any Western inspirational influence, or even inwards in their own demons, but rather downwards in the direction of a navel that continues to be contemplated. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and in particular since the turn of the millennium and the presidency of Vladimir Putin, I would contend that much in Russian film has become insular, smug, perhaps even self-congratulatory. An example is The Barb of Siberia, directed in 1999 by Nikita Mikhalkov, one of the foremost actors and directors of the past 40 years. It is set in the last decades of the 19th century, lovingly recreates the pageantry of the imperial past, as well as the sheer expansiveness of the Russian land and its people, the Russia we have lost. In other words, Tsar Alexander III is portrayed by Mikhalkov himself as both a loving father to his own son, presumably the future Nicholas II, as well as a benevolent father figure to his officer cadets, and by implication the perfect caring little father to his people. The film serves as both a warning to Russians about the perfidy of foreigners, and as a celebration of the vast expanses of the Russian land and the Russian soul. As a recent scholar noted, the Barb of Siberia introduces a paradigm shift in recent Russian nationalist discourse, where the concept of the motherland, where the concept of the motherland is replaced by that of the fatherland, with Mikhailkov himself as the strong, benevolent patriarch. The film was actually meant, was said to be part of Mikhailkov's own publicity campaign to be the 2000, uh, to be the president in the 2000 presidential elections. In other films of the time, however, the father figure seemed to have exercised only a negative influence. In Pavel Chukhrai's The Thief, made in 1997, Stalin is the evil father who has abused his people and deprived them of a future. In films made since the turn of the millennium, directors have turned, or rather returned, to the literal father, although symbolic overtones are not hard to find. In the 2003 film The Return, the father is an, an inadequate figure, one who provokes resentment and strife with his sons. Indeed, if anything, it's the sons who are more mature and sensible. Alexander Sakura's Father and Son, also made in 2003, shows the intense, possibly too intense, bond between father and son without any mention of a mother figure. But in the end, the son leaves the father to a solitary existence. In this rejection of the strong father, is Russian culture finally coming to terms with the authoritarianism of its past and facing up to a society of consent and mutual respect rather than coercion and vindictiveness. Not entirely. My search for the, for the father in Russian culture thus began with my study of the village prose writers of the 60s and 70s and their affirmation of a national identity based on tradition and respect for the land. And the work of Bielov, Abramov, Astafiev, Rasputin, strong male figures are notable for their virtual absence. It is the women who occupy centre stage. It is their inner strength that keeps the family and the community together, if indeed it can be held together. Men still seem to be having a hard time of it in post-Soviet Russia. A recent book by Sergei Minaev entitled Duchless, Povestar ni Nastayashim Chalavekia, or Spiritless, the story of an unreal man, published in Moscow earlier this year, has great fun with the idea of the emasculation of a whole generation of men born in the Soviet Union in the early 1970s, as well as a self-consciously debunking the cult of the male positive hero in socialist realism, at least in its title. Coming to my conclusion, I return to Valentin Rasputin, who has made a comeback in literature under Putin's presidency. In 2003, he published a novella entitled Daughter of Ivan, Mother of Ivan, which updates much of his previous work, although the basic themes remain the same. 
Again, we have a strong central female character. Tamara Ivanovna, born and raised in the village, whose lament for the passing of the old ways, including the togetherness and self-sufficiency of village life, now translates into Rasputin's own curmudgeonly rejection of all aspects of the new Russia, including young men with ponytails and children wearing designer clothes. He particularly dislikes Russian drivers of Western cars who do not dip their headlights when approaching traffic. But dependable father figures are again notable for their absence or weakness. National identity is never static and is always absorbing external influences as well as it evolves through decades uh, as it evolves through decades and centuries. Russians continue to look both east and west for direction, just like the double-headed eagle, that is their national symbol. In these terms, national or nationalistic discourse remains very much rooted in the symbolism of this picture by Isaac Levitan. The Vladimir Road is the road leading from Moscow, along which convicts on their way to Siberia would set out. Yes, they would walk. And in this painting, it's a road which leads into the vastness of eastern Russia, with its associations of penal servitude and hardship. The picture also points us towards a Siberia of vast natural wealth and untapped resources, seen also in terms of the hidden depths of the Russian soul. The viewer's gaze is most certainly directed away from the materialistic pull of the West. It has been said that the search for a strong father figure is a sign of an immature political culture. But it seems to me that what Russians have yearned for this past century has been above all peace, stability and, and something akin to what we in the more comfortable uh, environs of Western Europe, Europe call normality. Russia looks both east and west for its identity. No less a figure than Joseph Brodsky, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, has said that without St. Petersburg, Peter the Great city built as a window on Europe, then Russian literature itself would not exist as we know it. I hope that I've explained, at least in part, my ongoing fascination with Russia and its culture and the unique contribution it has made to our cultural awareness. And I remain convinced that its practitioners will continue to enlighten and amaze us for decades to come. Thank you.